Welcome to New Books in New York City History, a podcast series presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for the New Books Network. My name is Taisha Maddox, and I'm an assistant professor at Fordham University in the Department of African and African American Studies, and I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at Rutgers University. And today I'll be speaking with Dr. Jesse Hoffman Garskoff, who is an associate chair and professor of history and American culture at the University of Michigan. And we'll be talking about his new book, Racial Migration, New York City and the Revolutionary Politics of the Spanish Caribbean, published in 2019 by Princeton University Press. Uh, Dr. Jesse Hoffman Garskoff's first book, A Tale of Two Cities, Santo Domingo in New York after 1950. Um, He also has many numerous uh, articles out. And his research areas include transnational migrations, music, race, and ethnicity. Good afternoon, uh, Jesse. How are you? Good. Good afternoon, Taisha. Thanks for doing this interview. This is great. Is there anything you want to add to your bio that you want um, listeners to know about you and your work? No, I mean, I guess I'll just add that I'm, I'm right now I'm the director of the Immigrant Justice Lab here at the University mm-hmm. of Michigan, um, which is a little bit off topic for New York City history, mm-hmm. although obviously it's also really important for New York City history and present. But we're, we're, we, we work with local um, pro bono legal providers to try and provide academic research to the benefit of clients seeking, seeking immigration to Michigan now. So that's something I'm proud of and I wanted to just add into the record. Oh, awesome. That's great. So I like to start on, if you will, by if you could give us a brief overview um, of the work itself and explain to you, explain to us what led you to this second project. As it seems, it's a little bit of a departure from the time frame of your first book, and it explores a completely new group of um, immigrants to New York. Right. I mean, what's what's similar between the two projects, um, I think, is that they're both about New York City. They're both about mm-hmm. um, about people who uh, emigrated to New York City from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. Um, and so there's a real there's a there's a clear similarity there, but they're in really different time periods. So the first book is about the period after 1950, and particularly Dominican immigrants uh, to New York City, but also the the relationship of New York City to Dominican society and politics and culture uh, on the island. Um, the second book is this new book, Racial Migrations, is about um, the 19th century. It's about the last three decades of the 19th century and sort of pokes its pokes its head into the 20th century only very briefly. And it's not it's about uh, migrants from the islands of Puerto Rico and Cuba who came to the, to the, to the United States. Um, both books are similar in the sense that they they take New York City history as a as a. a, a a possibility, the possibility that New York City history and their experience of migration to New York City might not just be a chapter in the broader narrative of U.S. immigration history, but might actually be a, a chapter in the narrative that we can tell about the histories of the islands of the Caribbean. So the in, in each case, the books start and spend a lot of time in the Caribbean before even getting to New York to try and find out who the people are who are coming, what kinds of things are important to them, how are politics and culture uh, percolating through their lives before they make the decision to migrate, and then tries to understand how migration um, to New York City, settlement in New York City, engagement with other New Yorkers transforms their experiences, political experiences, cultural experiences, social experiences. But then both books end, and this is true of racial migrations too, back on the islands, trying to think about what the longer term consequences are for the politics and culture of the islands of having had this migrant experience abroad. Um, so the new book is really, um, it's about these 19th century migrants and and uh, and the, the key uh, analytic is the, the 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 central figures in the book are all people of African descent or partial African descent um, mm-hmm. from the islands of Puerto Rico and Cuba. And the key analytic is what does the experience of migrating while black, or in the, some cases migrating, possibly never having considered yourself black, but seeming black to, to people in the United States, um, what what influence does that have, particularly on the ways that this group of people um, practice politics and and assert themselves as intellectuals, and what where the payoff is for this group, um, and it's a group of people, some some of whom your some of your readers may know them, but some may not, that include Rafael Serra, Juan Bonilla, Sotero Figueroa, um, Pachi Marin, and and others. The, the the payoff is that they end up being very important in the story of the rise to uh, leadership of Jose Marti, who was also a New Yorker, um, mm-hmm. although he was not of African descent. 
Uh, and so the, the payoff is how does their, how does their experience as, uh, people born in the 1850s in these Caribbean islands, which were still places where slavery was a dominant economic and social system uh, and where Spanish colonialism was the governing system. Um, how, do they, how, do, how do people of African descent become intellectuals? How do they become migrants? And then what is the experience of migrating to the United States due to their choice, their political choices, particularly the choice to, 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 to align, themse- align themselves with Jose Martí? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much. So one of the things that immediately uh, I was taken aback by when I started reading the book, um, one, you provide a very helpful uh, like cast, a list of your cast of characters, which I think is really helpful. And I found myself going back to um, just to make sure like, OK, I know who that is. OK, I'm following. I got it. <laughs> and then uh, another thing that really stood out to me is that you list uh, not only do you list the cast of characters, but you almost have like a yearbook with the faces, with pictures of um, pictures of these immigrants. And it stands out that these are, you know, these are black, these are black people. And I wanted to know if that was intentional, um, putting those pictures in the beginning of the text in the way that you did. And why did you find it important to not only list these cast of characters, but to include their representations of what they look like in the beginning? Uh, yeah, those are those are wonderful questions. So, I mean, the cast of characters, I, I, I think all the questions are sort of interrelated. One of the things mm-hmm. that I discovered as I as I got into this book is that I had these broad questions, but there was this unusual opportunity that I found, <laughs> which is that there was a very specific group of people who who had provided me with the documentary evidence during their lives to tell mm-hmm. a story that was really personal, that was mm-hmm. really about the about individual lives being lived in 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 these contexts that I that I knew so much about. And I Mm -hmm. and I made the decision at some point that telling the stories of a handful of individual lives, and I'm not the first person to do this, but but it's unusual to be able to do it in the context of Afro-Caribbean people. Mm -hmm. Especially in this period, I think, too. Yes, especially in this period, a handful of individual lives that can be represented both by documents that were created by states or by church, the church, but also mm-hmm. represented in people's own words because they were literate and articulate and, and had access to the printing press was an unusual thing to do. And that I wanted to try and do it in a way that would be engaging and, um, and narratively compelling, but that that was an incredibly complex thing to ask people to read. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the cast of characters is both to emphasize that characters are the center of the story and to really you know, you can provide an introduction that would be an introduction about what historians should rethink about the way that we talk about things or that would be about historiography or what people have gotten right or wrong in the past. But I really wanted to start with giving a reader the sense of what, you know, what's coming, what's coming are these people and these people, even in a brief sketch of them that you put in that cast of characters, you start to see how, how both how rich the community they created was, but also how, how, how sort of incredible and unusual they are not because they were unusual at their time, but because they're unusual, it's unusual that their stories would come down to us. Um, mm-hmm. the, I already mentioned that I feel like part of what was really useful, what was really fortunate for me in, dis- in sort of uncovering these stories was that I, I came to believe really strongly that the subjects of this book themselves made heroic and, and, and Herculean efforts to write themselves into the historical record. That is one of the one of the main dynamics that I continually come across is the and I should just say that the, the main characters in the book are either cigar workers. They, they, they spent their days earning wages, rolling cigars mm-hmm. um, or print workers. So they spent their days uh, organizing, you know, setting type in and printing in, in printing houses. Um, they made and also midwives, pe- people, women who 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 did the work of of helping other women to bear children, but also all kinds of other primary care and community community based care. Um, they made heroic efforts to make sure that their own stories were going to be recorded um, and particularly going to be recorded in ways that would be that wouldn't be easily erased. So they they spent a lot of effort and time on getting writing stories about each other, publishing stories about each other, and putting into the printed record things that as they felt historians needed to know. And one really wonderful example of that is that at the, la- the last thing that Rafael Serra does, really, as an intellectual in New York before going back to be one of the most successful black politicians in Cuba in the early 20th century, is that he publishes a book with all of those, most of those images that you mentioned. And mm-hmm. he's the one who lines them up 
as a, as almost like yearbook. And he gets these really wonderful, very clear, um, gorgeous images of these beautiful people. Um, mm-hmm. And they are self-representations, right? These are people who made the choice to spend some money to go to to get a to sit, have a formal seating in front of a photographer. That doesn't mean that those that those self-representations aren't restricted and limited by the expectations of the society around them. But it felt it, it felt to me honest and 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 reflective of the sources I was finding that this was a set of pictures that the people who I was writing about would want to be included and, and, and upfront in this book. Um, and I also found myself, um, looking at the pictures a lot because as I was imagining the things that I was finding out about the people in those photographs, um, I kept returning to them to remind myself what these people looked like to try and Mm -hmm. just, just imagine what it, what it was, what their experience was in the spaces that I was, that I was finding. So, in the text, and even just now in our conversation, you mentioned that you you wanted this uh, work to read more as a micro history, of course, more like a novel than a standard or a conventional history text. And I wanted to know why that approach was important for you. Why was it important for you to to tell these narratives? Um, and in what ways were you able to construct the narratives? You mentioned um, Sarah. Uh, taking the pictures and in documenting the history. But can you talk a little bit more about your sources um, and maybe some of the surprising or even limiting issues that you found uh, in doing this archival research and putting Uh, it all together? Yeah. So, I mean, um, the, the choice, the choice to write it in this way um, is partly, you know, the choice that, that comes, that that's about trying to take on a writing challenge and see if you can make Mm -hmm. it work. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and that writing challenge is, I, I mean, I think it's justified in a couple of ways. One is that I think that, um, I hope at least, and this is certainly my experience with the, with my first book, um, that there, there, I don't, I never think that historians should think that we're going to have a huge audience, but I think that there's an audience for the, this set of stories and a group of people out there who, who might have uses that they would want to put these histories to that may not be eager to wade through the kinds of conversations that history historians really enjoy having among ourselves, like about, about methodology or about historiography. Um, and so I tried the, the goal was, and it's a writing challenge and I, you know, the, the proof will be in the pudding. The goal was to write something that would be engaging and, 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 um, and draw people in from outside the, the historical profession or maybe students who are, who mm-hmm. aren't as interested in, in the arcane details um, while still satisfying you all, the professional historians who know what the arguments are, and hopefully you'll see that the way I tell the story communicates something about the arguments or satisfies the desire for um, for precision um, mm-hmm. or for for scholarly obje- you know for scholarly uh, uh, following the scholarly rules. Um, so that was the that was the writing challenge that I that I um, wanted to set up, and 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 I I. I hope that it that it's been successful. It's it's obviously really hard to tell as from from this uh, vantage point. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of the in terms of the way the challenge is, I mean, one challenge is just how do you imagine and tie together the stories that you have that, for which you have rich documentation, right? So you have a figure like Serra, who was uh, really an active writer and published published actively from 1879, 1880, all the way through his death in 1909. And so you, I mean, just assembling—it's challenging but doable to assemble sort of a, uh, an informal collected works and read your way through. And he left all kinds of clues about what he was thinking about and what he had, what he was feeling. And the same thing is true about Sotero Figueroa. So those are those are public um, expressions of their of their ideas and and of their uh, their politics. And and it's possible and really engaging to try and reconstruct them. When you when you mention challenges, though, certainly. Um, there, there are other key figures in the book, like Gertrudis Heredia, who was married to uh, Rafael Serra and was a midwife, one of the midwives that I mentioned to you, um, and was just is just probably the most fascinating character in the book. She was the granddaughter of 
of African elders in, in Matanzas. She grew up in a community in which her grandparents were the leaders of a, an African cabildo, a Lukumi cabildo. Um, she became one of the first black women to graduate from the University of Havana's uh, midwif midwifery certification program. And then she became a community leader in New York. And she was the president of all of the or vice president of all of the women's organizations created by uh, migrants of color from Cuba. Um, mm -hmm. And yet, she, because she was not, um, she was literate, but she was not writing. I, I haven't found no instance of her writing in her own voice. There's just way less to, to there, there's there's way less to write about and to find about her, and so the the challenge has been how to really represent through storytelling and through you know creative reconstruction the audacious the audacious projects imagined by black and brown men from the 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 Spanish speaking Caribbean in this period mm -hmm. without while recognizing that many of those projects made invisible or silenced the particip active participation of black and brown women um, and trying not to reproduce that by simply going with the best material. So I, I, I tried to force myself, but I, I did face challenges to, if not f find equal or, or a totally balanced presentation, to really find ways to, tr to get into the stories of the women in these communities who were mm -hmm. evidently to me equally important in creating the community and in imagining the politics. But if you just followed the printed record would be almost totally invisible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely women. Um, I was going to ask you, that's a question that was going to come up. Um, in what ways were women um, influential or present in these historiographies? Yeah, well, so I mean, you know, just just thinking of thinking of this through um, the the role of midwives, because because uh, Herdrius wasn't the only midwife, then I was one of the things that I discovered as I was doing this mm -hmm. research is that, in fact, uh, the other, there were two women, uh, Josefa Blanco and Gertrudez Heredia, who were the the leaders of most of the women's groups that formed in in mm -hmm. New York, um, including groups that ended up being part of, you know, forming political clubs and joining the political the, the Cuban Revolutionary Party as party members, as voting members of the party. Mm -hmm. um, they were both midwives, and I thought that can't be a coincidence. Yeah. Um, but then, then a big one of the real questions about that I'm trying to pose. In, in the in especially in the middle chapters of the book, mm -hmm. um, what are the kinds of communities that migrants create to contend with the issues that are, they face as migrants uh, migrants of color, right? So mm -hmm. if we understand that migrating while black produces some kinds of challenges that all migrants face, but also some additional challenges if you're moving into a space of racial dom you know of racial domination mm -hmm. that may that that's not necessarily familiar. You, you have to figure out where to eat, where to, where you can, where you can rent a house, where you can find work, um, whom you can marry, what kinds of spaces you can move through. And you want to do that while avoiding, um, indignity, but also possibly while avoiding violence and depending mm -hmm. on what society you're in. Um, and, uh, and so I, the, the, in the chapters where I'm trying to figure, ask that question, how do people find housing? How do they find other things? What I came to was, well, actually you, you need to figure out how to how to give birth to children and mm -hmm. you know because people are people are pregnant and people are giving birth to children that's a serious issue to try and resolve and it seems mm -hmm. to be resolved partly by cuban doctors who are part of the much more elite cuban uh, community in other parts of the city but mm -hmm. my my but also partly by 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 cuban midwives um women of color um mm -hmm. and so reconstructing trying to think that backwards and think, well, of course, it doesn't seem that surprising that women would be elected to certain leadership mm -hmm. positions if they're already involved in helping to resolve some of the most important and urgent uh, issues in the everyday lives of migrant of migrant communities who 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 uh, helps women who are in in labor, who uh, attends to uh, to women's health and to children's mm -hmm. health. Uh, and then who do you turn to if you need a referral to a doctor or if you need to have contact with somebody else in the medical community? And, and I think that the role that women played in doing that really helped to consolidate the community because the second part of the question is, mm -hmm. so the first part of the question is, what does what do migrants who are identified by others as, as, as African descended need specially in order to, mm -hmm. to manage the problems of migration? The second yeah. part is how do those communities that or, or organizations that they create to do that, how did it then become the ground for for politics? And this is, I think, interesting to you because of your work, right? Mm -hmm. How do social how do social clubs become the basis for political action? 
Uh, yeah. And by, by the 1890s, it's clear that the very same networks that were created basically to survive the problems of migration are turned their attention to to politics. And by the 18 by the early 1890s, not only have they turned their attention to politics, they become they, I, my argument is they become the first and in some ways the strongest network of political supporters that propel Jose Marti into leadership. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a pre-existing communal and political network that then choose Marti and propel him forward. Mm -hmm. So I want to get back to that. But first, I want to ask you just what role does New York City, do you think, play in this text and maybe in some of those political decisions that they make later on? Yeah, I mean, so it's an interesting question, right? So this is for a New York City blog, so I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I can push it <laughs> in that direction. But so, I mean, w a question that a Cubanist might ask, right? The flip side of it is there are mm -hmm. there are more Cubans, especially more more Cubans of color and more working class Cubans in Florida. Um, mm -hmm. There are quite a few in New Orleans. There are a lot in Veracruz, yeah. Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. So why New York? Why the focus on New York? And and yeah. part of part of the reason is because New York has this sort of special place in uh, in Cuba, in Cuban history, because of the role that New York has in U.S. empire in the Caribbean region, right? So mm -hmm. the banks are in New York, the merchant trading houses are in New York, the sugar refining companies are in New York, uh, the biggest cigar market at the time is in New York. So, um, so wealthy Cubans had already, by the time the main characters in my story come to New York, wealthy Cubans had already basically had a second, had second homes in New York and were doing all kinds of business there, which meant that when wealthy Cubans became involved in nationalist politics and, and trying to renegotiate the, the colonial relationship with Spain, the center of that political life was in New York City. So when mm -hmm. working class Cubans and Cubans of color wanted to intervene in that politics, um, even though there might have been fewer of them in New York, they were much they were very successful at, at, at projecting themselves into the center of the politics because they were close by. It, they were part of this multi-class national community. Um, and in fact, one of the other arguments is that the fights that they had about what a multi-class national community abroad would look like mapped right on to the fights that they were having about what they thought a future Cuban nation should look like. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one of the one of the things that I think is really interesting. The, the other thing that's really interesting, and I don't think this is limited to New York, but it's specific in New York in the story, is that New York was a place of really interesting African-American politics at this time. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and a particularly really interesting African-American politics from the perspective of Cubans and Puerto Ricans because the, the, the New York was, a, was a, a city with very small black population in this period, um, you know, 20,000, something like that, black people in a city of a million, um, maybe up to 40,000 by the end of the, of the period of, of my study. Um, but those those folks were concentrated in specific neighborhoods and they were the same neighborhoods and the same apartment buildings that the Cubans and Puerto Ricans of African descent were living in. So they were they, they were they were not a very large community, but they were very much present in the same spaces that that the, that the Caribbeans were were in. Um, and they were involved in similar kinds of politics almost at the same time. They were trying to imagine how the specific publications that they were leading from their capital cities, um, either Havana or San Juan or here in New York, which is sort of a cultural capital, might mm -hmm. help to convert, uh, to, to, to transform and create a national movement around black advancement. Um, mm -hmm. And then they were also, New York State was an interesting place because it was a place that, that had um, specific laws on the books that prevented racial uh, discrimination in public accommodations, which is unusual in the United States in the 1890s. Um, but those, th that, those rules were not followed. And so the, the African-American activists in New York, one of the things that they were doing was to try and take lawsuits against mm -hmm. individual proprietors of restaurants or, or hotels if they broke those laws uh, to try and get the state to intervene. And that's exactly the same thing that, this, that the, the Spanish subjects of the Caribbean were doing. Because by mm -hmm. the 1880s, the Spanish crown had said, you can no longer, uh, you can no longer discriminate in public facilities yet nobody was enforcing that law. So the, at the very same time, they're developing really similar strategies. And out of that, I think they, they start to have really interesting conversations about, mm -hmm. about party politics, about legal avenues, and about the, the balance between creating national civil rights organizations or simply participating in party politics. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, another question I was going to get to in asking what connections did these uh Cuban and Puerto Rican immigrants have with the African-American communities because many of them were living in the same neighborhood. They um, sometimes shared the same jobs um, and there might have been 
I'm, I'm wondering if there were overlap in their organizations and maybe some of the clubs, if there were connections amongst them. And then also other West Indian immigrants who were also coming at this time. Um, I know the Anglophone, from my own work, the Anglophone West Indian um, immigrant groups were also creating their own clubs and societies at this time. And you make mention of William Drake, uh, the pastor of the Bethel AME Church, and how he was inviting um, these Cuban and Puerto Rican immigrants to come to services and connect with people in that way. What other uh, connections are forged during this time? Yeah, so I mean, one of uh, the the answer is yes. There are there are definitely connections, and that's mm-hmm. that's a thing that I that I. At the beginning of the project, I was surprised by, but by the end, I just, I, it just seems so, so clear. Um, the yeah. Um, and the, um, the, the first set of connections are made th- either through churches or also through fraternal organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so the when when I when I speak of the the kinds of uh, associational life uh, and community building that was necessary for 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 Black immigrants in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that associational life takes place in the context of a broader black civil society in in New York. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, when when Herman Sandoval, who's one of the early uh, kind of pioneers for black Cuban pioneers in New York, uh, creates the the Logia San Manuel, the, like the uh, a fraternal lodge. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's for Cubans. It's for Cubans of color. Although I presume that they eventually will allow white Cubans if they want to come in to come in. Mm-hmm. Most don't choose to. Um, but it's a fraternal. It's it's a branch of the Grand United Order of the Odd Fellows, which is a black mm-hmm. a, a black fraternal organization and a really important part of black civil society, male black male civil society in the period after World War uh, after the, not World War One in the period after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the Cubans have contact with it. It, because they create chapters both in Key West and in New York, um, mm-hmm. and they basically translate all of the kind of the lodge rituals and all the paperwork into Spanish. Uh, and so they're really when they're when they're creating their own institutions, they're doing so relying on their contact with uh, with African Americans. And the same thing happens when they create their first Masonic lodges uh, in mm-hmm. New York and in South Florida. And here again, the 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 chicken and the egg question is is really important, right? Is it that they have contact in these social uh, in these associational contexts and fraternal orders, and then they build social contacts out of them, or do they have the social contacts first? And my conclusion about the about the the Masonic Lodge that gets created in 1880 in in New York um, by Black Cubans and eventually for Black Cubans and Puerto Ricans is that many of the people who created that lodge already had substantial ties, personal ties to African Americans. They were married to African American women. Mm-hmm. So they had African American male brothers in law. Sometimes they were living in mixed apartments with African Americans. Oftentimes mm-hmm. I summarize working in the same contexts. Um, and so there's a way in which they're when they create a Spanish speaking uh, Prince Hall Lodge, Prince Hall being the, the grand lodge for African American Masons, mm-hmm. they do it relying on the on the resources that they have from their their relationships with with, with African Americans but they also are gesturing that they want to be not just African Americans that they have something particular that they want to do with only Spanish speakers they want to create a space that's both that that both overlaps with black civil society but also is their own in a certain way um, and and th- those two spaces the two lodges are really key examples for me of the community building that precedes the politics of the 18 of the 1880s and 1890s. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then and then as that politics develops, the the contact between black newspaper editor, African American newspaper editors, and black Cuban newspaper editors who are working within a few blocks of each other in New York is extensive, and you can see that they're sending, they're translating for Cuban audiences um, pieces that they pick up from the black press in the United States. Uh, and 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 by the same token, some of the Cubans start to send information about what's happening both in the Cuban community in New York, but also in Cuba itself, to the black press in the United States. So they they early on as migrants start to see themselves as go-betweens between national community, you know, between diasporic communities, mm-hmm. um, and see the printing press as a as a, and and the and the distribution of newspapers as a as a way of doing that. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why they invest so much money in 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 taking photographs and then creating uh reliable plates 
that can mm -hmm. be used to print, to print them in a, in a, in a high, high quality way. Because once you have those plate photographs and plates, it's much easier to suggest to a newspaper editor, hey, I've written this sketch about this important um, man of color from Cuba, and here's a great image of him. Would you mm -hmm. include it? Um, and you see this in their personal correspondence that the editors are saying, I'm working on a book or a, a series about important African-American intellectuals. I understand that there are some in Cuba too. Would you be willing to contribute something? And would you be willing to lend me a photograph of, of this person that I know of? And they're doing, they're, they're kind of passing that information back and forth. So a question that I often get, and I'm going to pose it to you, I'm sure you've gotten it before, is when writing about these Black immigrants in this period, people are very surprised about how mobile they are. And when we look at your cast of characters, some of them are moving from Havana to, you mentioned Key West, to New York, um, to Cologne, and then you even mentioned uh, Venezuela. Mm -hmm. So how are they allowed this mobility? You coined the term, you mentioned it um, in the book and just now, uh, migrating while, what, sorry, migrating while black and then also migrating while colored. And yeah. what, what do you mean by that? And what are the implications of that? Well, so for the first question, I, I, I think that it's, it's really interesting. And I also get these questions. People are surprised also that people that mm -hmm. the characters in my book can just show up at a courthouse and say, yeah. I want to be a U.S. citizen. And the, and, the, and the judge says, oh, OK. And maybe and then like two <laughs> weeks later, they're voting in a federal election. Right. Yeah. So that seems really surprising. And I think that one, there, there are a couple ways of attacking this. One way of attacking it is to think that our current mode of extreme hostility to, to the mobility of people is something that has evolved uh, significantly since then. Um, though I should say that this is directly in the middle of the period when especially Chinese immigrants are in, are in the crosshairs. So it's not mm -hmm. that there weren't racialized restrictions on mobility in this period. Um, so, so then the question is why, given that we know that the, the history of anti-blackness in this country and in the, and in many parts of the Caribbean, why is it that in this particular moment, blackness isn't a thing, isn't a, 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 a more, um, a more powerful restriction on mobility, given that states are starting to imagine the restrictions on mobility and given that there's plenty of anti-blackness. Um, and I think part of the, the answer to that is, um, is that that the 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 Caribbean is such a mobile society? Start with that it takes a while to get the technologies to start cracking down on it. Um, mm -hmm. But part of it is that the, really that the migrants that I'm looking at are coming in the tail end of Reconstruction, uh, and there actually are real legal measures during Reconstruction that matter um, for to preserve this mobility. Um, so, for instance, in 1870. Um, anti-racists in Congress try and get the white prerequisite to, to naturalization out of the U.S. statute. From Since the, since, since the basically the beginning of the Republic, you could only become a, a naturalized citizen if you were a white, a free white person. Um, but in the period of, of the 14th Amendment and the, and the other uh, reconstruction leg piece of legislation, um, anti-racists say, well, we should take that out. We should just say you can become a citizen if you're a free person. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth about it. And the, the anti-Chinese folks end up winning the day and saying, no, you can't take white out because if we, if we take white out, then we'll make, make room for Chinese people to become citizens. But the compromise is, well, we'll let people of African descent and African nativity become citizens. And literally within a couple of months, there are Cubans applying for citizenship, black Cubans applying for citizenship. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's sort of an afterthought in most U.S. immigration history, but it's really important around this, this question of ability. And the other thing is to to recognize what I think you know and what you know what Lara Putnam I think has written about really beautifully and powerfully, mm -hmm. is just how dramatically the 1924 immigration legislation cut off mobility for Black migrants. Yeah. And not just that piece of legislation, but all of the nationalist immigration reforms of the 1920s and the 1930s really, really um, struck a, a devastating blow to a, a migrant world that was really active and in which, which blackness was not, did not preclude mobility um, mm -hmm. it, in the greater Caribbean. That there's all the Latin American societies that border the Caribbean as well as the United States. It just wasn't the case in the 1890s and, and the early 20th century that there was that kind of restriction based on blackness. Um, I think that was the second part of the question. I'm forgetting it now. Um, I asked, uh... Sorry, I already moved down. <laughs> I asked uh, the the term that you phrased, migrating while black. Oh, right. um, what what were some of the implications? But I think you you answered that pretty, pretty oh, okay. well. Okay. Sure. Um, 
And then another question I had, I wanted to get to these organizations, um, to the La Lingua, to talk about it a little right. bit. Um, can you explain the differences? Because a lot of these terms come up, the Masonic Lodge, uh, the Cabildo de Nacion, de Nacion uh, Mutual Aid Society, Society uh, de Color. What are the differences in these organizations and were there some overlaps? What What were their goals? Right. So formally, so you've listed a bunch of different things. Formally, organizational life or associational life for for black and brown people in the Spanish Caribbean, um, the, there, there were kind of a couple of traditional ways of doing that um, up until the late late 19th century. One was a cabildo de nación, um, mm-hmm. which was actually permission to be ethnically African. It was a it was a, a, a they were state state permitted. They had they were licensed, and they were usually created by African-born people who had become free, um, which is a whole interesting story of its own. And then oftentimes they were used as tools to to actually save money and, and get other folks free. So they were already mutual aid societies in a basic level, but they they are the spaces in which are you know the 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 current you know contemporary even to today. Afro-Cuban cultural expressions, such as Afro-Cuban music, um, Afro-Cuban spiritual practice, and philosophical mm-hmm. practice, were built and consolidated as new waves of of captives came in from Africa. But as also as as Cuban board generations continued to keep alive the kinds of philosophical, spiritual, and political arrangements that they had created. Um, so that's a cabildo de nación. Um, there are also uh, confer- religious confraternities. Um, I don't really focus on those very much uh, in the mm-hmm. colonial period. And then by the end of the 19th century, especially in Cuba, there's a lot of pressure on on black communities to give up Africanness. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's an, there's a, a promise uh, 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 from some of the leading political parties as well as from the colonial government that um, that there may be some space eventually for black political participation in and, and citizenship, and whether that's citizenship in, in as Spanish citizens or whether that's citizenship as Cuban citizens in an, in an independent Cuba it is still very much up in the air. In fact, the, you know, it's it's not really safe to talk about an independent Cuba, but there is this, this promise, and that promise is, is, is um, allow, creates a situation in which the government encourages black organizers to create these new kinds of clubs Sociedades de color or colored societies, and they tend to be um, urban workers, urban, relatively well off compared to the majority of the rural, you know, former, former and formerly enslaved people who are working still cutting sugarcane. They're urban, they're crafts, craftspeople, um, and they they organize social clubs, which are places where you can have dances, where you can. So th- those sociedades de color are the spaces of an emerging. Um, Black civil rights movement in the late uh, late 19th century, as well as the first um, or the or the the largest boom in black periodicals. So so newspapers oftentimes oftentimes those clubs will have um, have a newspaper affiliated with them, and they'll oftentimes also have a school because one of the great one of the big civil rights projects of of the of that generation, the generation that came of age right around the end of slavery. So slavery is. Uh, the, the law that is going to abolish slavery in Cuba is passed in 1880, and then it's finally enacted by the end of 1886. Um, in that period, the the generation of civil rights activists they really are advocating for free and universal education. And in the in the meantime, they use their clubs to raise money to be able to provide free education to to students uh, to students who can't afford who don't have access to public education and can't afford private education. So that that's a lot of the the folks who come to New York and then create the the movement in New York are are veterans of that project. They've both been involved in the clubs, in the civil rights politics, and also in the publications. Um, now you asked about Masonic lodges. Um, mm-hmm. So Masonic lodges are all male. They are secret. They have um, a significant element of um, of sort of ritual within them. And uh, that, that secret. So there's initiation. There's uh, there there's secret knowledge that's passed only on to initiates, which actually is not so different from the from the cabildos. Um, but mm-hmm. the content is different. It's it's not African necessarily African content. We actually don't know all of the content. Uh, and in the Cuban yeah. context, there are some Masonic lodges that are mixed that are mixed race, and there are some that are not. But all of them. Um, 
are run by white Cubans, right? So there, there might be some where the white Cubans are relatively open to in accepting black Cubans in, and there are others that are not, but they're all mostly run by white Cubans. And so one of the interesting things that happens is that the black Cubans in New York, um, and then also in South Florida, they sometimes participate in those mixed race social institutions for Cubans, but they also sometimes create their own, their own Masonic lodges. Um, was there another kind of... And then the La Lingua, is, oh, it, yeah. is it a convergence of all of these together right. or do they create, are they creating something new? Yeah. So La Liga, uh, it's, it's, it's created in, uh, in, at the end of the 1880s in New York. And it, bec it I, I think it's, it's very similar in, in many ways to the Sociedades de Color on the island. Um, mm -hmm. It has a project of education. It does offer a free school. It's about, mm -hmm. it, it really is dedicated to a project of, of social uplift. Um, mm -hmm. It's a little bit different because the, the aspirations of the people who create it are, are higher at that point. So it's not mm -hmm. about basic education for people who are illiterate, which is the way a lot of the clubs are really operating in, in, mm -hmm. in Cuba, but it's about actually trying to find resources, intellectual resources and training to promote um, uh, men of color as they, as, they, as they described it themselves from Cuba and Puerto Rico into the professions that they're not, they're not represented in. So it's taking people who already are, who are probably craftsmen, but have a relatively high level of basic education and trying to help mm -hmm. them to think about how to, how to become journalists, intellectuals, um, uh, and, and other, uh, and other professions, teachers mm -hmm. and other professions. Uh, the other thing that the La Liga does, which is unusual from, from, with respect to what's going on in the island is that it, is that it becomes a center for, for political organizing, um, uh, and, and I think actually even in the name, it sort of is hinting at the, uh, an idea that this is going to be the case because at the very same time La Liga is formed, the New York African-Americans are creating something that they call the Afro-American League, which is going to be uh, a national civil rights organization that's going to work to, mm -hmm. to help organize and p put pressure on political parties. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think La Liga is, is in some ways parallel to that. Um, and the idea is there'll be lots of, there'll be lots of these clubs all around. There'll be one in... Key West and several in, in in Cuba, and they'll all dedicate themselves to promoting black leadership in a, in, a, in a kind of a new way by training black men to have the skills to be leaders, but also by promoting a, a, a by being unified and promoting a general uh, putting a unified face towards the political class. The other thing that becomes really unusual about La Liga is that 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 Serra, when he creates it, he recruits Jose Martí to be a supporter of of the project, and out of that develops the, a really unusual relationship. The the La Liga ends up actually becoming a political club, mm -hmm. in all but name, that supports the early efforts of Jose Martí to assert himself as the leader of the in, of the independence movement abroad. You have how to follow up question? Yeah, so I was going to say La Liga. Were there spaces for women to be involved in in that organization? And then were there, I guess, maybe like branches or connections with, like you mentioned, in Key West, like organiza organizations also forming around the same time in uh, Key West? Yeah. So, yes. So there are spaces for women to be involved. But I think, as I mentioned before, they're not always inscribed in the public mm -hmm. record. Right. So the founders are thought of as being men. And that's one of the things, one of the other reasons why I like those photographs at the beginning of the book, despite the fact that the founders are, are, are shown as being men, the members are represented as men and women. There's this, this mm -hmm. wonderful um, sort of photo montage of the ladies of the Liga. And as I did the worked more and more into the project, I realized actually I, I knew who these women were and I could find out lots about them. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so, so there are, there, there are clearly spaces for women to be there. And in fact, mm -hmm. By the end of the project, I feel like even the times when it's supposed to be only men, there probably were women and children in these spaces always. And that mm -hmm. the, the, the idea of the formal division of private and public sphere is something that, that works really well on paper, but that in actual life and practice wasn't mm -hmm. going on. That, there were, that, that I think sometimes at political meetings where only mm -hmm. men are listed as, as participants, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure there are women there too. Um, okay. It doesn't usually happen. It actually may happen the other way around when there are women's groups meetings, there may be men there too. Um, but for the most part, it's about, it, it was, a, for me, it's about having, having the, the disciplined imagination to, to recognize the clues that, that suggest that in fact, well beyond what is, what is indicated on paper, women are present. And it actually corresponds really well with Elsa Barkley Brown's art, uh, um, 
argument about women in African-American politics at this point, that there's a kind of a public facing African-American politics that face towards white folks that mm-hmm. is, is overwhelmingly male in the way that it represents black politics, but that in the in the in the conversations that black folks are having among themselves around politics, conventions, meetings, women are active, vocal participants, and and really necessary for the democratic for for the for the democratic functioning of those organizations. I think something mm-hmm. similar is going on um, at La Liga. And then, so you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I want to go back to it that in it's in the 1890s that we see this turn um, to politics. What's happening in this period? Um, uh, we know, but I'd like right. you to <laughs> express yeah. more. What's happening so, in this period that we see this change? So, um, yeah, let me just specify. I think it's a it's a it's a new form of politics. Um, so I think that um, even from the beginning of the story back in the eighteen late eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies, there there's always a politics, but the politics at that point is a politics of rebellion on the island, right? There's a yeah. There was a re- anti-slavery, anti-colonial rebellion going on in the eastern part of the island, and so the politics was really about the the being involved in a project to, f- to raise funds in support of that of that movement. But that politics was dominated by wealthy white Cubans, mm-hmm. um, and and there wasn't really it wasn't really structured around around what we think of as sort of modern party structures. It was basically a kind of a group of notables who would call meetings together and were, were sort of self-appointed as the leaders of the Cuban community. Um, uh, so the other alternative for working class uh, Cubans and for Cubans of color in those early years and straight through the 1880s was simply to volunteer for military service. That was its own kind of politics. And in mm-hmm. fact, Rafael Serra did that in 1888. That he ended up never making it to Cuba, but he followed the... the um, the African descended general Antonio Maceo and other African descended generals into battle. The plan was to follow them into battle and to and to really do the politics of equality through launching a revolution against slavery and and in favor of equal rights. Mm-hmm. Um, what's different about the 1890s is the way that that long-standing set of political uh, goals and the long-standing political ideology that had been articulated within them get transposed onto a new kind of organization, which is a party structure in which there's universal suffrage. Any man who joins the party will have a vote as to who's the party leadership. And therefore, party leaders really, as as they set this up, set themselves up to be dependent upon the opinions of working class migrants and migrants of color. And Marti is really savvy about this, but I think he's savvy about it because he's guided by this pre-existing set of, of social networks. That if he if he can he can figure out he can if he establishes a democratic process for choosing leadership and he outflanks his rivals for leadership by becoming popular with the larger number of working class migrants mm-hmm. and he can assure himself a place uh, in at the head of the movement. And so he sets mm-hmm. up a movement which grants a lot of power to working class migrant clubs to choose who's going to be the leadership um, mm-hmm. to his own benefit. Um, and that's when. That's when that though all those all those Masonic lodges and clubs and in South Florida labor unions, you know, mutual aid societies and labor unions, they all shift and they they you know one by one groups like La Liga start to splinter off and create uh, political clubs which they can use then to support Marti's leadership in the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I found it really kind of um, eye opening to watch that process happen because. Um, it's oftentimes been thought of as being something that Marti created and mm-hmm. then later went and appealed to working class uh, to the working class to to populate, right? So that in some ways Marti's appeal was already prefabricated by Marti and then later presented to working class and 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 Afro-descended people as a kind of a fait accompli. But in fact, it seems to be to be uh, something that was built simultaneously by by Marti and those constituents. Um, mm-hmm. And it actually it, once they built it, um, and I would say that there were some similar processes going on on the island, uh, actually both islands with the political parties that are emerging there. But once all of these political parties build a set of assumptions around black participation and work class participation, mm-hmm. they end up not even even when they want to undo it, they are not able to. And 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 the 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 first decades of of the 20th century in Cuba, only 12 years after the end of slavery. There's mm-hmm. universal manhood suffrage, and all the parties have to appeal to black voters. 
Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't it doesn't solve the problem of racism, but it does create a real difference between how Cuban politics work in that period and how African-American politics, you know, how U.S. politics work where African-Americans are being systematically excluded from voting. Yeah. So I think one thing that that really stood out is how transnational this story is, even in the structuring of the book, how you start in um, in the Caribbean and then you come back to you come to the U.S. and then you move back and forth uh, pretty seamlessly, I think, um, between Cuba and Puerto Rico and New York and Key West. And I think it's really amazing the ways in which these men are able to influence these transnational politics in both Cuba and Puerto Rico. And I wanted to know how were these men who were so obviously of African ancestry allowed entree into this public square and allowed to make, to set these terms, you know, and what were some of the limitations that they had? Yeah. Is it because they had the backing or because Marty is part of the organization or gives some relevancy to it? Is that why they're allowed? What do, what do you think it is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's that's the central question, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think um, because it's it's it is easy to be amazed at their successes. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also really important to, to, to describe the, the constraints. Um, mm -hmm. And to understand that their self-assertions are self-assertions that are made within constraints. There are not, it's not like there's endless opportunities to be a black leader in these con contexts. There are specific contexts yeah. in which in which specific black people can become leaders. Um, mm -hmm. There are significant contexts. There are contexts that, that agile and creative black thinkers and activists make use of in ways that nobody ever had imagined, but they are specific. Um, mm -hmm. So for example, one would be the abolitionist movement in, in both mostly in Puerto Rico, but then eventually in Cuba too, mm -hmm. has space, just as the abolitionist movement in the United States has space for Frederick Douglass, the mm -hmm. abolitionist movements in those places have space for, um, for particular, for, for both comrades, but also examples of black masculinity that is, that are non-threatening, right? So that mm -hmm. on the one hand, they want people who can, who can show that uh, the perfectibility of black men and the ability to attain education and to participate in politics, because that's congenial to the politics that they, that they're, that they're trying to convince everyone else of. But mm -hmm. those white liberals also don't want uh, too radical an approach. They don't want mm -hmm to a sort of an approach. Uh, and so those kinds of constraints are, are, are there. They also want um, accomplices in giving a message out to black pop people to be patient and, mm -hmm. and to, and to be willing to wait for certain kinds of things that they deserve. Um, mm -hmm. They also really. Sounds familiar. <laughs> right, of course. And, and, and of course, normative sexuality is a huge part mm -hmm. of this. And, you know, we could, um, I, I think that this is another place where African-American Really, the really good work in African-American studies, particularly in, in African-American women's history around re respectability politics and dissimulation yeah. are really useful here, mm -hmm. right? That is, all respectability politics are not exactly the same, and there's lots of local con context, but it's clearly true that if you want to be, a, if you want to take the limited space that there is available to be a, a representative of the, of the class of color, and you want to put yourself forward as a dignified and honorable black male citizen, you have to buy into civilization, all kinds of civilizational logics that may or may not, you may or may not believe, right? You may mm -hmm. enjoy African music, you may, in, you know, Afro-Cuban music, you may uh, love to dance, but you, you can't necessarily say that out loud. Um, you also might not believe it, but you also have to really um, sometimes stand up and say, oh, our communities and our families are are not behaving properly in terms of sexuality, whether or not you believe that. Um, and those are problematics that I, you know, that I can't fully untangle from this distance. One question I had uh, or one of the final questions I have, because we have to wrap it up soon, is in what ways uh, would you say or would you say that these groups, um, these men um, in La Lingua, La Liga, did they espouse like diasporic, like African diasporic ideal, ideals? Were mm -hmm. they in a way developing a like African diasporic worldview? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think that they were. I think that mm -hmm. I think that I, this is something that I've, I've been trying to think through for many years because mm -hmm. um, the 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 way that I came into this project 
was that I started working on the figure of Arturo Schomburg, who was mm-hmm. part of this community, and then of course became a uh, collector and bibliographer and, and art historian who really helped to be an architect for the idea that we have, current idea we have of, of the black of a black diaspora, um, including through the creation of this archive that people you know that we all rely on the uh, at, yeah. at the Schomburg Center. Um, and I, I started out thinking that Schomburg had sort of evolved towards an idea of a black diaspora out of mm-hmm. what had originally been a real, basically just a nationalist concern. But mm-hmm. actually having read Frank Garitti's book uh, and really thought through other people's work on this and then spending time back in the 19th century, it does. It seems to me that the two things evolve simultaneously, right? That all those contacts with other people of color, first of all, Cubans and Puerto Ricans together who are actually already engaging in diasporic conversations when yes. Cubans of color mm-hmm. and, Bla- and and Puerto Ricans of color get together. They're both Spanish subjects, but they're mm-hmm. meeting and, and comparing black experiences across, a, a, you know, in, in context of migration. And mm-hmm. then this, the time that they spend with African-Americans and with West, with West Indians in New York the time that they spend in Panama with West Indians in Panama, the time that they mm-hmm. spend in Jamaica, the time that they spend in, in Haiti, the time that they spend in Santo Domingo, um, provides them with a comparativist frame. They, they start to develop ideas and, and, and oftentimes express their own um, plans and projects within the national frame mm-hmm. from a comparative perspective. And at the same time, it generates a need to, to collect information about communities abroad because migrating while black, there is no green book, right? Mm-hmm. There is, and there is no, uh, there is no trip advisor to tell you which yeah. hotel to stay, right? <laughs> yeah. There's no, or, 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 or what the, what the rules for race are in this new mm-hmm. city that you're going to arrive in. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the collecting of names, kind of diaspora collection of information about other communities comes at, it looks a lot in the early years like a Rolodex. Like this is mm-hmm. an outstanding, uh, you know, man of color who you might contact if you're ever in this place. Uh, and and I'm I feel sure that's directed at migrants who are, are anticipating that they might be going to new places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also out of that, there's in all of the a lot of the publishing, especially as Cubans go back at the end of the war, they're they're doing a lot of publishing to try and insert themselves into into historical narrative of the independence movement because they know the people who are recognized as having this historically part of the movement are going to be the people who reap the benefits of the movement in the new in the new era there's a real symbolic battle about that um, mm-hmm. and at the same they almost always at the same time take the opportunity to point out that it's not just black cubans contributing to, to, to cuba but in fact that they have a diasporic perspective which is to say we also need to highlight the fact that there are really important african americans who are who are contributing to the political life of the united states and that mm-hmm. there are there, there are black Frenchmen who are contributing to, Fra- who, to the greatness of France, and that mm-hmm. Venezuela and Puerto Rico and Mexico and, and Brazil all have leading black figures, both to make an argument that globally blackness is part of, of modernity and civilization, but also I think because they're they they believe that their individual that that the, the individual and national projects of equality depend on an, an international movement for equality. Um, so I think that there really is a kind of a black internationalism that's that's coeval with or that that works together with the nationalism that's so prominent. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually was surprised to find that those that the first Pan-Africanist Congresses that happen in 1900 and and shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. there aren't Cubans there. And I think it's mm-hmm. really only because their country has been occupied by the United States and they're so focused on the here and now that they have to try and figure out how to get. U.S. occupiers out and how to assert mm-hmm. themselves in the in the constitutional process, and so there's this kind of like really interesting gap right at the beginning of those those interesting pan-Africanist and diasporic institutional framings where Cubans mm-hmm. are relatively absent, but wouldn't have been ten years before and won't be ten years after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I really enjoyed this conversation so much, and I guess the final question I have or um, is what do you want readers to take away from this text in reading it? What do you want us to learn from this? What's the major, yeah, what's the major takeaway? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I, 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 one of the, I will say this, that, that one of, having written a, my first book, which was my dissertation and really mm-hmm. kind of the thing that I learned how to be a historian on, um, Having been fortunate enough to to have the opportunity to write a book about the experience of Dominican migrants in the second half of the 20th century, um, uh, the 
I'm, I'm glad that it helped me to establish my career as an academic, but the thing that makes me mo that both surprises me, but also is continually the most gratifying is every time that I happen to meet someone who identifies themselves as the first as a Dominican immigrant who was the first person in their family to go to college. And when they got to college, they were looking for something that might be helpful to them and trying to think about how they fit into the histories they were reading about. And they found in my book and it was a, and they appreciated it. That's the, that's the thing that is the most, that makes this pro the, 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 the work that I do as a historian, the most rewarding that, that it would be meaningful to people who are, who see themselves in the stories. And so I've written this, I mean, this gets back to the question of why write it as a story, right? I've written this book thinking that if it, that it, that that obviously it would be wonderful if new york historians take it seriously and if the historical profession takes it seriously but that if it can be something that's meaningful for people who are trying to make meaning out of their own experience in the 21st century as black and latino black or latino involved in coalition building um that that's the most important thing and i don't have a particular message except make use of this in the way that it makes sense to you um mm -hmm. you know I, i've i've tried to do the work to to think about how it might make sense to me, but I, but I really hope that, you know, activists, artists, students, you know, everyday people can find them way to these stories because I do think that there is an interesting and, and growing Afro-Latino movement, both outside of the academy and inside the academy. Um, and there's just not a lot of sources back this far to draw on. Absolutely. Um, and I will say, uh, I have used your text in some of your articles in class. And I, at Fordham, I do have a large uh, group of Dominican students or students who have Dominican descent. And they, they definitely find themselves in the book. And they're really excited about reading about their history and having it represented in a classroom setting. So it definitely does that work. And I know this, this new book will also do that work as well. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. And thank you again for joining us today for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for organizing it.